Welcome, Space Policy fans. This is the Space Policy Edition of Planetary Radio, coming to you once again from the Planetary Society. This uh, special monthly podcast uh, about all things having to do with space policy and advocacy uh, that uh, so many of you seem to be enjoying, and we are very grateful for that. I'm Matt Kaplan, the host and producer of Planetary Radio, joined once again by my colleagues, that's uh, Jason Callahan, the Society's Space Policy Advisor, working out of D.C. full-time. And uh, next to him on my Skype screen, you will have to use your imagination, is Casey Dreyer, the Planetary Society's Director of Space Policy. Gentlemen, welcome back. Hey, Matt. Hey, guys. How are you? I am just doing great. It's exciting to be talking to you once again. Uh, we're going to do something a little bit different this time. There's sort of an overarching umbrella topic that we will reveal in a moment, but uh, there are several subtopics within this very important issue, which is one that, that I really take to heart. It's one that I just, the Planetary Society cannot be more, can not be involved enough in the subject of asteroids and exploring them and near-Earth objects. And uh, as I put it on this week's regular show, things that go bump in the night if you're not watching carefully. I, I hope you guys are as excited as I am. Oh, yeah. I mean, also, I mean, we're, this is kind of in honor of this episode of OSIRIS-REx, the newest planetary science mission from NASA that is, as we record this, about to launch in a week. And so we thought we'd talk all about asteroids and all the kind of the, the policy of deflection, mitigation, how the U.S. and other international partners deal with that, and also the future of asteroids, right? Not just exploring them, but maybe mining them for resources. And then also... You know, we have this kind of interesting change in, in how we've thought of asteroids. And Jason has some really interesting just kind of history of this that we're going to look at of NASA's relationship to asteroids and near-Earth objects, comets, I'll, I'll lump in with there as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think when you talk about near-Earth objects, you're talking about anything that comes near the Earth, right? So it's not just asteroids, it's also comets. But these things also exist throughout the solar system. It's interesting to see the different types of missions required to get to different destinations. And OSIRIS-REx is really interesting in that, that regard, in that the asteroid that it's going to is actually not that close to the Earth. So we'll talk a little bit about what challenges that presents as opposed to something that is actually close to the Earth. I mean, it'll eventually be close to the Earth, right? I mean, I think we have a, <laughs> a flyby right. coming by in a couple decades and, and periodically beyond that. Let's actually, should we just talk maybe a little bit about OSIRIS-REx and, and how that came to be? And then we can kind of go from there into this bigger issue of, of planetary defense, right? Absolutely. Sure. And I will send either of you a dollar or both of you if you can uh, spell out the acronym. Uh, <laughs> Origins Spectral Resource Explorer. No, uh, oh, I'm so close. All those words are in it. And Regolith Origins, Explorer, Regolith, I think. Yeah. yeah. I, don't know. <laughs> yeah I think you had me at O. Yeah. 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 <laughs> We're going to yeah. get a nasty note from Dante Loretta, the PI. But uh, Yeah, you should know this more than us. We're, I only know three-letter acronyms. I don't go right. beyond that. So, yeah, or uh, TLAs, as they're known. Yeah, TLAs. Exactly. I'm all with that. I'm down with that. Casey, you want to talk about this mission? I'll talk about it a little bit, and I'll throw it over to Jason as we've gone through this series, we've talked about different types and sizes of planetary science missions, right? You got your big strategic flagship missions like Mars 2020, the Curiosity rover, Voyager, Viking, the big multi-billion dollar missions. You have your tiny missions, quote unquote tiny, right, of, of NASA parlance, your sub half a billion dollar missions, discovery class is what pocket money. Yeah, pocket money. Yeah. I, I mean, you know, this is a four trillion dollar government that we have, right? So, you know, it's like a fractional percentage. 
then you have this relatively new type of planetary science mission, right? At the first class, uh, first of its class was, was New Horizons, right? That flew by Pluto. The second one, actually, we just talked about last time, Juno, right? It was a New Frontiers class mission, a medium-sized mission, just got to Jupiter. And the third mission of this series of missions, of this type of mission, is about to launch uh, as we record this and will have hopefully, cross our fingers, successfully launched by uh, September 8th, I suppose. These are medium-sized missions, right? These are cost-capped at roughly a billion dollars if you include the launch vehicle cost. They are led by an individual, a principal investigator, Dante Loretta, as you uh, mentioned earlier. And they're like the international, they're Ocean's Eleven, right, (laughs) of of the planetary mission world. Like this individual person, they assemble their team of scientists and engineers. They find an industry partner that will build this thing. And they propose to NASA within this funding line that, you know, is made available every 10 years or so at the moment. NASA goes through a rigorous selection process. They compete with other missions. I think this one... Do you remember which one this one beat out in terms of uh, its closest competition? Boy, they you, usually select a couple, and they yeah. do some additional studies. And I'm, I'm blanking on which one they uh, uh, beat so out. So am I, and we did a show about this, so apologies to uh, to those folks. If I, I Just having to guess, just because the perennial runner-up has been the uh, lunar sample return from the South Pole, uh, the South uh, Aiken Basin, uh, Aiken Basin, probably, let's say. Yeah, <laughs> which, is, which is being considered again. Uh, yes, right. It's, it's a new very, frontier, right? Absolutely. Anyway, yes, yeah, so this is a, a medium-sized mission, only a billion dollars, but these missions have worked pretty well. Uh, I, is it fair to say, Jason, can you correct me on this if I'm wrong? New Frontiers, uh, excuse me, New Horizons, Juno, and OSIRIS-REx, the three missions in this line, have all come in at budget or under budget? That's correct. Yeah, no, the the cost and schedule performance on these missions has really been extraordinary. They've done a great job. Yeah, amazing, right? And so really, so these are kind of these mid-sized missions that can do a little bit more. And this is OSIRIS-REx, of course, the exciting thing is that it's going to not just go to an asteroid, it's going to go to an asteroid and come back. Right. It's going to leave us a little sample, as I say, that the most amount of uh, planetary sample returned to the Earth since Apollo, which could be anywhere from 60 grams to two kilograms. The, the next step of New Frontiers as a program line. So we're all very excited, but also it, for asteroids. And so this is where I want to throw it over to Jason a little bit, because I don't know if all of you have been paying attention, but there's been quite a few missions to asteroids and comets happening lately. That hasn't always been the case. Yeah, that's absolutely true. That uh, NASA's history with asteroid exploration has been has been very interesting. The first proposed mission to go to an asteroid or a comet was actually back in the mid '80s, the last time that Halley's Comet came close to the Earth or came back around the Sun. Anyways, Halley's Comet comes back into our neighborhood about once every 75 years. The last time was in 1986, and NASA was looking at sending a, me- a mission uh, out to Halley's Comet to study it as were most of the other spacefaring nations on the planet. Interestingly, this happened during a time that NASA was also uh, investing a lot of money in the space shuttle. Uh, They had just confirmed uh, the Hubble Space Telescope and the uh, uh, Galileo mission to Jupiter. And as a result, there wasn't enough money in the budget to actually do a Halley's Comet mission. So NASA did not build a new mission to go to Halley's Comet, though the, the European Space Agency the Russian space agency and the Japanese space agency all built multiple craft to go. They were all very successful, which was really interesting. One yeah. of those proposals to uh, an American proposal to uh, send a mission to Halley's Comet 
was largely headed by the founding executive director of the Planetary Society, uh, Lou Friedman, when he was uh, at JPL and uh, the great advocate for solar sailing. He had these very ambitious plans to send a solar sail to the comet. Never happened. No, absolutely. And uh, another founding member of the Planetary Society, Bruce Murray, who was the head of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory for a number of years, uh, was a huge proponent of a mission to Halley's Comet. And even he was not able to, to push it through the, the, the NASA bureaucracy. Yeah, and they really pushed. I mean, this is like JPL really pushing for this mission. NASA, this is at a, probably to say the lowest point in history of the planetary science program is when they were trying to make this mission happen it was in the early 80s. Yeah. So the 1980s in planetary science are often referred to as the lost decade of planetary science. Uh, in the entire decade of the 1980s, we launched a grand total of two planetary science missions, and that was Galileo and Magellan. And both of those were at the end of the decade. So you basically had 10 years without a single launch and the budgets were much lower than they are today. It was a it was an existential crisis for planetary science in this in this country. The silver lining, if there is one to this, is that this is why the founders of the Planetary Society got together and said, we need a group to advocate for planetary science. And we're here today because of that. Yeah. yeah so and, thanks to those three guys, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, and what's interesting, too, is that it wasn't just the fact that it was a comet. It was the fact that it was Halley's Comet, right? It was the most famous comet in human history. And NASA just kind of, yeah, what are you going to do? And I think you ended up getting Giotto was the... Uh, the ESA spacecraft that went, and then I forget there, there was a Russian spacecraft. There were actually Soviet two. Spacecraft. It was Vega 1 and 2, I think. Yeah, that's where the, all the pictures we have today. And so interesting just kind of change in the self-perception of what NASA's, in a sense, responsibility is uh, and, or leadership role is in terms of planetary science has really changed. And also, I, I just pointed a little side point. I looked this up. I'll get angry emails about this if I'm wrong, um, but so please send them to me. Uh, but I think the first NASA spacecraft to ever visit an asteroid was Galileo on the way to Jupiter. It flew by a couple of them, actually, uh, uh, Gaspra and uh, Ida and Dactyl. Is that correct, Jason? Those are the Past first. an asteroid, I think that's correct. Uh, there was actually a very interesting little episode having to do with Halley's Comet. NASA had a spacecraft already in space called the ISEE, the International oh, Sun-Earth yeah. Explorer 3, that they repurposed and sent past a comet uh, six months before any of the other agencies were able to get a comet or get a, a spacecraft to Halley's Comet, basically so NASA could say that they got to a comet first. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't intended to go past the comet. So the data that they got, you know, the instruments were not ideal for going past the comet. So the data they got was, was less than optimal. <laughs> but but you're definitely yep. correct about Galileo, Casey, uh, that it did pass those asteroids. You know, not terribly close, but it did return some pretty good science. And so, but this is, so Jason brought this up to me the other day, though, as we were talking about this episode. So we had this, what, the first 60s, 70s, 80s, the first three decades of planetary science, you did not have NASA selecting missions to actually go to asteroids, right? Or, or really, or, or comets, or any near-Earth objects beyond the moon, I suppose. And I actually had a, a question for you, Jason, because since then, we've had quite a few. Why don't you give us a quick summary of, of what's happened since, and then I'll pose you my, my, my question that I... Understand. Sure, sure. In the early 90s, NASA started the small mission program called Discovery, uh, and these are the missions that Casey referred to earlier that are budgeted at under half a billion dollars and they're competed missions. And that line has turned out to be very, very beneficial to the asteroid and comet communities in 
uh, space science. And out of basically 10 discovery programs that we've had, not including InSight, which hasn't launched yet, not including Kepler, which has been moved to the astrophysics line, we've had 10 missions launch. Of those, five of them have been to asteroids or comets. Two have been to Mars, two have been to the moon, and one was a, a solar wind explorer. So this has sort of become the, the asteroid and comet line for exploration in NASA, which is really interesting and very different. And it was opened up by this, this uh, competitive program that was started in the 90s. And I think a part of that is because asteroids, because they can fly by us and because they tend to be small and they have no atmosphere, right, to land, if you want to, I mean, they, I guess Eros near landed on one, I guess, technically, eventually. <laughs> right. Um, on Eros. But uh, you also have, they're, they're small, the gravity wells aren't big, there's no atmosphere, and so they're just more accessible, right? And they're, they're relatively close to the sun. So when you're capped at a relatively low cost, you know, you can't, decide this is always the problem with this mission line it's really hard to get out far right to saturn or jupiter or anything that takes a long time to get there and so just based on the amount of uh, in a sense the accessibility this is why the mars tends to get so many missions too i think right yeah is that it's closer than the outer planet so it doesn't cost as much to get there and it doesn't take right. as much time yeah yeah so my question was my question to you jason was i was wondering the shift, right? This wasn't until the 90s when this program started that you really started to see NASA sending missions to asteroids. And since Discovery is a mission line that is actually, it, it's proposed by scientists rather than kind of decided by the strategic planning committee with inside NASA that would otherwise choose the flagships. Do you think that's reflective of when NASA thinks of a big flagship expensive mission, it does not want to go to an asteroid because of the it just that they don't think it would have the same public relations impact or the same kind of bang for your buck why do you think that is or is that a connection there that the science is driving the missions to asteroids versus the strategic planning of nasa not ever selecting an asteroid mission before that's a really good question i think there are actually a number of factors driving that i think in the early days of nasa we didn't know very much about asteroids, so planning a mission to one, I mean, we didn't even really know where most of them were, and so planning a mission to get to one was really difficult. And we'll talk about the detection of asteroids here in a little bit uh, with the, the planetary defense stuff. But we really, you didn't know where to send them in the early days, but you could find a planet pretty easily. As time went on, NASA certainly leaned towards the larger missions. You saw this all the way through the 70s, that the missions just basically got bigger and bigger and bigger. It's one of the reasons that the community started uh, asking NASA for a small missions program. As the missions got bigger, they, they were uh, spacing them out further and further as well because you just didn't have enough money to pay for multiple big missions. As far as the, the science goes, what's really interesting to me is that these missions to asteroids and comets also sort of coincides with the increasing reliance by NASA and the government on the national academies for their decadal surveys. So you're starting to see the science community have more and more and more of a voice in what the potential destinations are, what the interesting scientific questions are that NASA should be asking. And as a result, asteroids and comets have, have gotten a lot more attention, I think. And the big picture there, right, uh, with asteroids and comets is that they, I think that the standard science thing is there are these uh, time capsules back to the earliest parts of the solar system formation, right? These are leftover rubble, a lot of them, from when the solar system came to be. I, this is with Bennu, right? It's an old carbonaceous chondrite asteroid. 
That is absolutely what uh, Dante Loretta likes to talk about, that this is taking us back to where things started, because it is expected to be relatively pristine, uh, uh, looking back at the formation of the solar system, why it's so important to go there. Of course, the other reason Dante would say it's important to go is because we need to learn about these near-Earth objects that threaten our planet. Oh, that's our segue. (laughs) Yes, that is the segue. Before we segue, I want to say just one more thing about Mission Light. I I just love how these missions come together. To Jason's point about how these are more uh, developing more and more, the next round of small discovery missions are are currently being considered. They selected five for further study. And I believe two of those are missions to asteroids, potential missions to asteroids. We have one that would go to... Uh, an iron a psyche, I think, right? That would go to a, a core of an asteroid, a metallic asteroid. And another one would go and explore Trojan asteroids uh, out by the orbit of Jupiter. And so much to exactly what we're talking about, we have a strong potential for further missions to these asteroids. To this point, OSIRIS-REx has been sort of the the exception to the rule, right? It's not a discovery mission. This is in the, the, the New Frontiers line. So it's a larger class mission going to an asteroid. The Trojan asteroid mission that you mentioned, and I think there was one other, uh, are also being proposed at a larger budget level for the next New Frontiers announcement of opportunity as well. So it's an interesting question. Are we reaching the point in science of asteroids and comets? You know, we've we've basically picked all the low-hanging fruit, and now we need larger, more powerful instruments to answer the questions that we have about these bodies. It may be that Discovery has been the house, the, the home to the, the asteroid and comet community for a long time, but now maybe they're moving into the new frontiers line and maybe at some point they'll end up with a flagship mission. Yeah. And I guess we'll look for that the next time we go through a decadal survey process happening here in the next couple of years. Lots of great science to be uh, learned from these objects that share the solar system with us. But of course, some of them uh, pose a threat to our planet. Uh, Let's talk about these near earth objects, asteroids and comets, the ones that uh, we've realized we need to watch out for. Planetary defense, right? The, the I, a very optimistic way to approach the problem of being slammed with a giant Earth-killing asteroid or, or comet, uh, and this is really fascinating to me. So I, you know, I didn't know a ton about this before we really started prepping for this episode. I mean, beyond, I mean, the society has a lot of work in it, but the the specific advocacy we do tends not to focus on this as much. And so it was fascinating going into this, and something that I realized, and let's just start it with with this kind of fact that actually kind of goes in with our last discussion about NASA's increasing focus on, on asteroids through its missions in the 90s, was that we really didn't have a sustained, focused effort to search for potentially threatening asteroids to the Earth until really the 1990s, the late 1990s. There was a few smaller surveys back earlier, but I mean, the government didn't really start focusing on this till like 98, I believe, was the first one written into to law by Congress. And that is was very surprising to me. This is a really new or very recent phenomenon that we're looking at here. For a phenomenon that actually, you know, has killed entire lines of species in the past, you know, we have no no real dinosaurs, if, excepting birds, I guess, because of asteroid, because of an asteroid collision with the Earth. This is a, a once in every, I don't remember what the... Depends how big it is. Yeah, right. ten, yeah. T- uh, 100 million years, I think, for an Earth killer. You know, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's like a power law plot. You can kind of look at the amount of things that hit you. But again, yeah, this idea that this is really recent. Even at the beginning of the space age, it took us 30 years to really figure this out. And I guess we didn't even know it. Was it Chicxulub? Is that how you say it? The one that killed the, the I think impact? I you got it right. Very well done. 
Yeah, thank you. <laughs> that was really what was that really confirmed in the 80s, you know, and that was really the final kind of a, a straw in terms of the amount of scientific evidence, uh, preponderance of evidence for that theory. And I think then it took a while for that to matriculate through your various policy layers. And, you know, a variety of studies started happening in the early 90s. And then you had this. Let's actually look at the congressional history of this. 98, you had this thing called the Space Guard Survey that Congress uh, demanded. <laughs> or they, I guess they don't really demand. They write into it like you have to. Uh, put into <laughs> legislation that NASA had to discover. Basically, they're looking for the Earth killer asteroids. They had to find 90% of kilometer or larger diameter asteroids by the year 2010. And comparatively, the funding for this program was really low, wasn't it? Oh, my gosh. Yeah, it was minuscule. We're talking $4 million a year. And that was actually after four. I don't know what it was actually before 2003. That's 2003 through 2009. NASA spent all of $4 million a year basically paying for some telescope time to look for you know, these Earth killer asteroids. And this was at a time when NASA's budget was actually in relatively good shape. Yeah, which is just, again, just kind of shy. <laughs> it, it, this goes back to the whole strange psychology around planetary defense and asteroids, right? The, the, I saw someone refer to it as the zero times infinity problem, right? It's like a very low probability, but when it inevitably happens, it is a rather large impact, so to speak. The issue here, right, is how do you, how do you properly prepare for something like that? I mean, these are basically step functions of disaster, right, in terms of plotting over time. I was reading a study by the National Academies. They they worked out some actuarial tables. It's like, oh, it's roughly the equivalent of 91 deaths per year if you average out over tens of millions of years <laughs> with the amount of it, wow. you know, which is puts it at way less than people falling off of ladders, right? In Somebody terms was of really bored one afternoon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there were some great actuarial people who were kind of making this point at the last Planetary Defense Conference, which is something we can talk about later. But at least potential city killer events roughly every hundred years I mean, that's, that's pretty bad. I mean, you know, it'd take a while to get over the loss of uh, Paris or New York or Moscow. Or middle of the Pacific, right? I mean, that's the problem. We, we just never know when these will happen. And it's so variable, the impact of where they, where they uh, hit. Yeah, and let's not forget, this is a real-world issue. I mean, meteorite hit Russia, not what? 2000. Chelyabinsk, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Yep. And uh, fortunately, no one was hurt, but it actually did property damage, right? Oh, no, no, it, no. Actually, lots there were... Lots of people there were a uh, lot of people hurt. hurt. Excuse me, I, I meant no one was killed. But yes, yeah, yes. 1,100 people were hurt. Um, mostly because they ran to the window to look at the pretty <laughs> fireball, and then the glass broke glass when the shockwave hit. But a uh, tremendous amount of damage, considering they, were, they got off lucky because it did explode fairly high up. Really what we're talking about when we're talking about planetary defense right now is just looking for any potential threats. I mean, that's really what we're focused on, we as being NASA and the nation and uh, international partners, right? That, that is the primary amount of money. And so from 2000, uh, as we talked about, we had this charge by Congress to find all these planet killers. Fortunately, none were coming our way. I think they found about 1,000 of them. And they, they have these statistics they can run. They found at this point about 95% of all of those potential threatening kilometer or larger asteroids that they think are out there. Pretty good. And, and we're good, right? None are coming our way. Then in 2005 we had new election in the NASA Authorization Act. So we've talked about authorization versus appropriation in the past, right? Appropriation funds things, gives money year to year. Authorization, broader policy goals, notably, does not give money, <laughs> though they recommend it. In 2005, 
NASA was directed to find 90% of all regionally destructive asteroids. Those are defined roughly as 140 meters or larger. There are way more of those. Yeah, and they'll definitely put a crimp in your day. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, these aren't even city killer, right? These are these are regional disasters. After they put this in the law, in the authorization bill, they provided uh, the other part of Congress, the appropriators, gave exactly zero more dollars right. with which to find these. Yeah, so they added uh, the capabilities that they wanted NASA to pursue, but they didn't give them any resources to do so. This is kind of your classic division between authorizers and appropriators, right? You can, when, when we talk about Congress tells NASA to do whatever, you know, it's a very broad term. You can have different parts of Congress telling NASA to do completely different things. And of course, the administration. And so we had $4 million. I mean, they just didn't increase it. And so they were slowly looking for these. But these are much, much, much harder to find, right? These are an order of magnitude smaller. Uh, there's many, many order of magnitudes more of them to find. They were just not making great progress. So that was basically the story at NASA for a number of years. And then, oddly enough, it was directions in the human spaceflight program that sort of changed the, the definition of or the, the definition of resources for the for the asteroid detection program. In 2011, the White House cancels the Constellation program. Just to correct you, this is 2010 talking about the 2011 budget. So this is all happening in 2000. Oh, got gotcha. Right, right. OK, right. So it's all basically the same time frame. As the president is uh, canceling the Constellation program in human spaceflight, uh, Congress is also directing NASA to uh, look for asteroids or continue to look for asteroids. The president, in redefining the direction of the human spaceflight program, sort of offhandedly in a speech mentions that we're going to send astronauts to an asteroid sometime in the 2020s. Unfortunately, at the time, we didn't know what asteroid astronauts would be able to go to. So this became a real problem for NASA Uh, They had to find an asteroid if they were going to send an astronaut to it. And suddenly the funding for asteroid detection started to to step up in a pretty dramatic fashion. It it quintupled, in fact. (laughs) It it roughly quintupled. It went from four million-ish a year to about 20 million. It was a nice confluence of events because this was you had in 2010. You also had a National Academies report come out uh, looking at the state of asteroid detection. And it basically said... This goal that Congress set back in 2005, no chance in hell we're going to make this. That goal was to find 90% of these smaller asteroids by 2020. That was not happening. Uh, So you had the power of a report mixed in with a more practical, immediate need of a part of NASA that tends to get far more political attention than finding asteroids, right? Just for planetary defense, it became imperative for the future of of the administration's vision for human spaceflight well, you better find some asteroids you can send people to. Which really says a lot about our priorities, right? That, you know, <laughs> well, that an yeah. asteroid could come and kill us all, and that's not really a big deal. But we need some place to send an astronaut to. Then <laughs> let's start spending some money on that quickly, right? <laughs> right? Well, I mean, and this is the whole funny thing about this field, honestly, is this idea of priorities. So, and just real quickly, we'll say that didn't stop there. In 2014, when they, and, or 2013, we had another confluence of events, right? We had the Chalabinsk uh, impact. We had the announcement of the asteroid redirect mission, which was the way to kind of reach the pres- hit the president's goals of visiting an asteroid without actually sending astronauts to go visit an asteroid in asteroids' uh, original orbit. And so you needed to find these small asteroids that you could potentially move into lunar space. Guess what happened? You doubled the near-Earth object observation program budget so it went from 20 to 40 million 
in another year. So you got another jump in funding because of this confluence of Chelyabinsk and more immediate needs of the human spaceflight program. Four million a year to forty million dollars yeah. a year. And that that's actual money at NASA, right? That's a that's a small mission annual budget right there. That's right. a discovery mission budget every year. Gone up by a factor of ten in just a matter of years. Still, you will not reach this goal of finding all of these regional killer asteroids, uh, regionally destructive asteroids by 2020. You can look at the statistics. They have actually some really nice plots on JPL's uh, near-Earth Observation Program Office uh, website. But we found about, I think, I'm trying to remember exactly off the top of my head, around 15 or so percent of all these asteroids at a rate that is definitely not going to reach our goal by 2020. And there's the problem is, is again, they're small, you know, a lot of telescope time, but also you have things like the sun gets in the way. You have to, I mean, really the answer is you have to have a dedicated space telescope. Then we're talking about, <laughs> what's the right term? Uh, realer money? More real money? Um, <laughs> walking around money. Yeah. Right. Yeah, walking around money. Because then you have to compete with other priorities in the agency. And this is an interesting consequence here. Look at this. We're back to the discovery program. So I should have said, I said two, I think three, because NEOCAM is one of the possible discovery missions that is being studied right now. That is a dedicated space-based telescope that would search for asteroids uh, right around the orbit of Venus. They would find within four years, they would find 60% of all of these regionally killer asteroids. And, and that's, that's a mission out of uh, JPL, our friend uh, at the Society, Amy Meinzer. But, of course, it's uh, just in competition right now, uh, the NEOCAM uh, Explorer. I want to mention there are uh, some very effective, far more effective than uh, what was being done years ago, the automated whole sky surveys like the Catalina Sky Survey, which are doing a terrific job. And there are still a lot of very talented I always say so-called amateur astronomers who have devoted their lives or at least their the dark hours of their lives to uh, not just finding but now increasingly characterizing these asteroids because it's not enough just to find them. You've got to observe them over time to determine their orbit and then figure out what they're made of because, you know, one that's made entirely out of nickel and iron is probably going to do a worse job on your town than uh, one made out of carbonaceous material. So there is progress, but as you've said, there's a long ways to go. Part of the difficulty in this is that you know NASA's science program asks scientific questions, and this isn't really an overly compelling scientific question when put against some of the other priorities at the agency. So from a science standpoint, you've got other things that you want to go look at. But from a safety standpoint, this is clearly a much bigger issue than whether or not there's life on Mars, right? So, so. so here's a question. Why, why isn't the, let's say, Air Force or uh, Homeland Security or some sort of national security agency ponying up the money for something like this? This would be a great pl place for a segue into our, our last little discussion topic here. But uh, <laughs> uh, you're talking about space situational awareness, uh, which is something that the Air Force is very interested in for the safety of their satellites, for Earth-observing satellites, for weather satellites. Industry is interested in this for communications purposes. We don't have a good space situational awareness system at the moment. As a matter of fact, uh, the Air Force shut down the space fence a couple of years ago in anticipation of replacing it with another system, and that system is not yet in operation. Our ability to detect things, even in low Earth orbit, is not very good at the moment, comparatively. When we were doing some research for this this show, uh, I started looking at some of the companies that are interested in asteroid mining. And one of the things that I sort of noticed as I was tooling around on their websites, not many of them are actually doing any asteroid mining at the moment. 
because they're trying to find the asteroids that they would go and mine. So what they're really doing is in a sort of privatized sense. They're, they're doing this initial space situational awareness and asteroid detection work. Uh, so it's sort of bubbling up in the private sector, which I found really fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. That ARCID uh, series of CubeSats from Planetary Resources. But just in the last uh, few weeks, their competitor, Deep Space Industries, has announced that they really want to go to an asteroid and do some uh, sample return, all as a private mission. Uh, it goes back to some of the conversations we've had about uh, commercial space opening up because of the ability to, to do this kind of stuff so cheaply nowadays. So I want to finish up one more thing on the planetary defense, and then let's move wholesale on to the planetary resource and mining stuff, because that is a really fun topic to talk about. So far, we've mainly talked about the detection part, that we need to find these asteroids. This is a great example of what Jason and I talk about a lot to members of the Planetary Society, but also to policymakers and people at NASA, Look at the advantage of when you align your program goals with broader goals of either the agency that you're in or national priorities, right? You saw these big jumps in your funding for NEO searches when you were able to tie it to the human spaceflight program and, and broader administration goals. That's just one point to think about. Again, you're looking for these things. Great. We're finding them. We're characterizing them. We have a whole slew of amateur, as you said, amateur astronomers adding to this, refining the orbits. But then what do you do? something is actually coming your way. And so there's a, there's a small portion of this 40, actually now $50 million a year, there's a small portion of this money that goes to deflection analysis. Classically, you look at these, what, I think there's four types. You have your, you, the old nuclear weapon, you know, Armageddon style, try to blow it up. The Bruce Willis or, technique. Yes. Yeah, the old, yeah, the Willis <laughs> technique, I believe, after its creator. Um, <laughs> you have the uh, kind of, you ablate, heat up or, or paint or something on like bright side on one side of the asteroid to get solar pressure to try to push it out of the way. Gravity the paint, tractor. Yeah. The paintball technique. right? Paintball <laughs> technique. You got your tractor, your gravity tractor, where you put some big mass next to it. And, and just by the mutual attraction of gravity, you pull, you change the orbit slightly so it won't hit Earth. And then you have your the old slam uh, a heavy thing into it to move it away that's not explosive, your kinetic impactor, which we've actually done. This has actually been tested by... A discovery, a discovery yeah, mission, yeah, yes, right. Deep Impact, back in the 2000s. And the Planetary Society got uh, somewhat involved with this by funding some early research on what, were, what, was, what is still known as laser bees, which is flying out a fleet of little spacecraft, who knows, maybe CubeSats, with solar-powered lasers that would fire at one side of an asteroid. Uh, it wouldn't matter that it's rotating because they could always fire at it from one angle and ablate that material, and just the outgassing would uh, divert the asteroid, change its trajectory, if you got there soon enough uh, to keep yeah. it from uh, from slamming into our planet. There are great variations on all of these. Hey, I want to mention, uh, before you go back into it, uh, the Shoemaker NEO program that I should have uh, mentioned when I talked about amateur, uh, amateur astronomers uh, who are part of this effort, uh, because there will be a whole new cycle of Shoemaker NEO grants opening up in the next uh, two or three months, I believe. So uh, people can check that out at planetary.org. But it has uh, had some really great uh, accomplishments with the amateurs that it has uh, funded, enabling them to do their job or to do a better job of finding and characterizing these objects. Good plug, Matt. I appreciate that plug. Thanks for keeping us honest. <laughs> Bruce um, Betts is going to thank me as well. Yes. Yeah, right. He, he slipped you a 20 for that uh, <laughs> reference. The, but you said something, actually, I really want to 
focus on here. You said if there is time, right? All of these scenarios to deflect an asteroid require a certain amount of time uh, in advance to prepare, right? The more time you have, the better, right? The smaller uh, course change you have to make. But also, I mean, we're talking about time just to get to an asteroid, right? Depending on how far away it is. You're talking about at least a year if you have a spacecraft ready to go. Two years for OSIRIS-REx to reach Bender. Two years, you're getting, yeah, and you're with an Earth flyby. So NASA does plan for this. And there's actually, it's a pretty high-level task force uh, within the federal government that's led by the Office of Science and Technology Policy in the White House. And you have NASA is involved in this, FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Administration, uh, Homeland Security. There's this big multi-agency task force. And here, I have it written down here so everyone can just remember this and you'll be a space policy pro. PURG is the name. <laughs> Planetary, Planetary Impact Emergency Response Working Group flows right off the tongue. Uh, that's an active part. Of the, this is part of the recommendations that came from that National Academies report. Again, the power of a report from 2010. And they sit around and they, well, they don't just sit around. They get together and they, they try to think about, game out these scenarios. What do we do should an asteroid be discovered to be coming our way? And the answer, for the most part, is to what they call very uh, euphemistically the civil defense method, which is build something over your head and try not to die strategy right <laughs> it's just like crap it's gonna hit us you know and and that just happens and we try to survive it and we basically manage the public's uh, reaction to it try to to save to save lives to prepare for a big disaster that is basically the answer that we have with our current amount of funding and technology that we've put into this situation i love that and 50 million dollars a year for detection and our, our mitigation strategy is duck and cover <laughs> yeah, it's a duck and cover. Well, well it and, worked in the 50s and 60s. Yeah, we were just fine. Uh, and and uh, there, there's a little thing that just, we'll link to this in the show notes. There's a kind of discussion. It's kind of fascinating. I mean, they, they get together and game out scenarios and, they, you know, a lot of it, but they, they have a bunch of scenarios put together. And there's a little uh, nugget of information, and I wish I could find this, but you know that uh, the national uh, warning system, you know, that emergency alert system that you, you hear tested on the radio every the now and E-A-N, then. The I'm a radio guy, the Emergency Alert Network, or yes. EAS, they changed it to Emergency Alert System. Yeah, <laughs> they have, I, I, I've learned, FEMA has pre-written a script for that system on the event of an asteroid barreling right at Earth and with like <laughs> to fill in certain details of it. I really want to know what that script sounds like because it, it's been written. They've prepared for this. It's kind of amazing. Uh, so the government does prepare for this stuff, right? This is part of their homeland security disaster management. It's definitely not the top amount of time that they take up, but this is something that they do. That's really, I think, just acknowledges the amount, basically with the amount of risk we're willing to accept, which is what are we really going to do? Well, if we find something... We'll throw a bunch of money probably at it. But until then, we'll just prepare to be in a disaster. And that's what you do when you have these like one in a million year events. You count on a crash program to save you in the event that something happens. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's really interesting. I want to mention Lindley Johnson, who now has the Planetary Defense Coordination Office within NASA. He talked about this uh, new office in our uh, February 2nd uh, show from earlier this year. Lindley, of course, is uh, can be counted on to attend 
the Planetary Defense Conference every other year somewhere around the world. That's something the Planetary Society has been deeply involved with, and I've covered the last uh, couple of times. Uh, Bill Nye was there uh, two programs ago. The last one in uh, Italy, they repeated a sort of tabletop exercise, a simulation, on the last day of the conference. And it is absolutely fascinating because you have scientists who have devoted their lives to studying these objects, and you've got people from FEMA and other uh, social uh, services around the world who are are presented with this scenario. Uh, We have detected this rock. It appears to be coming our way, and it looks like we've got maybe, oh, let's say 10 years. And then as the scenario develops, you get more and more information until finally you learn, as we did in the last exercise, that this big rock is going to take out Dhaka, Bangladesh, the capital of Bangladesh. Tens of millions of people uh, living in that city. And you get into the policy conflicts between nations and cultures as to what can be done about this and what maybe nothing should be done because there is actually some thinking that no matter what public officials do, it could make the matter worse, at least for some of the people who are under threat. Do you send up a deflector? Okay, do we then deflect it from Dhaka to, oh, Beijing? Uh, Chinese might not be thrilled. It, It is absolutely fascinating to see the policy and political ramifications of trying to deal with this entirely separate from the technical and scientific challenges. Matt, that's such a great point because a lot, so much of what we talk about, I think when people talk about asteroid, particularly deflection or, or you know, mitigating a threat, you just assume that there's going to be a coordinated world response probably led by the United States to take care of it. But that is no guarantee, right? Like, what if, what if there is a huge amount of disagreement between the Chinese and American uh, nations in terms of the best way to deflect something. And they both send missions out, right? I mean, who's going to stop them? This is a really fascinating problem. Or, or, yeah, as you said, you deflect it to a different city or you deflect it the wrong way or it fails or do you have backups? It's a world problem and a scale. I mean, they, I think in the report that from the National Academies, it said maybe this is kind of uh, similar to a World War II style threat or world mobilization to to a threat. But notably, that didn't turn out too well for a lot of people. And talking about the military aspects, too, that brings up yet another specter on all of this, which is basically any of these uh, active mitigation techniques that we're talking about could easily be weaponized. So if the U.S. is going to take the lead in this and they have technology that they could use, well, they probably don't want the Chinese or the Indians or the Russians to know how to build these systems, which adds a whole new bureaucratic layer to something that needs to be done very, very quickly, right? <laughs> yeah. And this is, <laughs> if it wasn't for ITAR, we could have saved the world. Right, right, yeah. exactly. <laughs> ITAR, I know, I was thinking about that same thing, like, well, what about the nuclear weapons ban, you know, in space? It's like, well, they'd probably still send a nuclear weapon to, to divert the asteroid and deal with the ramifications later. <laughs> yeah. But uh, there's one more thing I want to t- bring up with this in terms of practical issues that really threaten this, and then we can move on to asteroid mining. We have this huge political issue that would have to be worked out. And there is some work being done with this. At, at, how do you say it, uh, Jason, at the UN? Uh, Copuos. Committee on Peaceful Uses of Outer Space. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I couldn't come up with the on. <laughs> so that's a, it's an advisory council at the UN. It was originally put together uh, for the International Geophysical Year back in 1957. And this is the body within the United Nations through which all space efforts or space 
uh, treaties, space uh, agreements are activated through. So Kapius starts in 1957, then in the late 60s, you had a series of treaties that are known collectively as the, the Outer Space Treaties that were signed by most of the nations on the Earth and uh, are the basis for space law to this day. Oh, and we're going to so talk about the Outer Space Treaty. Oh, you bet. Minute. What a great segue we're <laughs> headed into um, here. No, oh, uh, but okay, one more thing. Let me just say one more thing because I thought this was really – this is something that I just took out of reading about this in terms of defense, right? And if we're really serious about asteroid defense, which we are clearly not because if we were – we would right now have on the shelf at some clean room somewhere a kinetic impactor spacecraft just ready to go, right? We would have already built it. We would have already tested it and designed it. We should probably have a couple, right? So we don't have to blow five to ten years frantically figuring out how to build one for the first time as an asteroid is barreling down at us, right? I mean, if we were truly serious about having our dotted I's and cross T's in terms of our planetary defense, we would at least have something ready to go. And I think because that's the real problem here is that not only do you have to burn time building it and, and getting out there, but you also then have to think about the launch mass, right? If you need to send something really heavy for a gravity tractor or for uh, an impactor, you are going to be limited by the size of the rocket, right? And your rocket equation stuff. And you can't just make it arbitrarily huge. And if it's a big asteroid, you need a big amount of mass to, to slam into it. Uh, and the so tyranny I thought of this the is, rocket equation, right? Yes. <laughs> and so, so this is one of this is kind of a roundabout way of going to. This is an interesting consequence. If we're also trying to be serious, and, and I'm just going to give this one to the uh, Space Launch System, the SLS uh, team, as a, a reason for them to, to pitch themselves. <laughs> but you should probably have a heavy lift launch vehicle that works, that, that it is ready to go, so you can launch the largest amount of mass to deflect an asteroid should you need that. You don't want to assemble that in space. You need to get that moving. You need to get it moving fast. And you need to put a big old hunk of metal on that to slam into an asteroid. You will need a heavy lift launch vehicle. So uh, there you go, the SLS team. I guess Falcon Heavy or, or the BFG rocket, whatever they want to make it. Uh, BFR, <laughs> excuse me, the BFR. Um, you know, that's that's another consequence, right? You can only and that's something that the report looked at. Like it, you can only launch a few thousand kilograms on a Delta four heavy that would go and intercept an asteroid in its native orbit. So you need a big rocket for this, too. Let, let me leave a, leave you with this uh, as we head out of planetary defense. Most of the experts at the planetary defense conference, including the, the guys at JPL who know what they're doing, think that a nuke is going to be the way to go, not to break up the asteroid but to explode it uh, on the right side of it and deflect it, thereby avoiding the need for a tremendous amount of mass. But again, you got to get out there early. There was all that talk you were beginning to say about uh, uh, treaties in space and deciding how the resources in space ought to be used or how they can be exploited uh, for the good of uh, humankind or for profit. And I'd say that that takes us into our next topic. Yeah, the... Outer Space Treaty, the first of the Outer Space Treaties, uh, covered property rights in outer space. And it basically said that no nation can claim sovereignty over bodies in the interstellar medium. The idea that you could go to the moon and plant a flag and claim that the moon was yours, uh, basically the entire planet agreed that we weren't going to do that. The good news about the, the Outer Space Treaty is that you had almost every nation on Earth sign it. The bad news is that there's really no enforcement mechanism. It's left to each individual signee to determine how they are going to adhere to their international obligations. 
each government sets up their own regulations over their federal space program and also over the uh, private market that exists in any given country, any individual company has to, has to operate under these regulations that are put in place so that the United States or that China or that Russia can adhere to their international agreement in the space treaty. So that sort of sets the stage for uh, all of these groups coming up, these new private space uh, enterprises that are looking at mining asteroids or using other property in space or using other resources in space and claiming them as property for profit. It's a really tenuous arrangement as it stands. I wrote down Article 2 of the Outer Space Treaty, that, that is the, the pertinent section here, right? So we can look at this. It says, for celestial bodies are not subject to national appropriation by claim of sovereignty, by means of use of occupation, or by any other means, right? It's, it's very clear that it really is intending to talk about national appropriation. And so people think about, well, does that apply to an individual? Does it apply to a, a company? This is why you have legal scholars who specialize in space law, because this gets very complicated very quickly. And it's also been, uh, there's been an interesting development just in the last year, where you have the passage of the Commercial Space Launch Competitiveness Act uh, by the U.S. Congress, which specifies that, yes, uh, individual uh, United States citizens can engage in the commercial exploration and commercial recovery of space resources, free from harmful interference in accordance with the international obligations of the United States. So you have the Congress basically saying, sure, individuals, yeah, go for it. And then they, they acted just so they clarified at the beginning, just so you know, the United States uh, engaged in the commercial recovery of an asteroid resource. We're still, the United States is still in accordance with the Outer Space Treaty. So they just kind of state that it is not a problem and, and you can go for it. But again, I think a lot of the thing, is, as Jason said, what's the enforcement mechanism, right? And that's where the interesting consequence is. If you claim an asteroid, you're an organization, you go out there, your planetary resources, and you say, this is my asteroid. Who's going to stop anyone else landing on that asteroid, too? That's the enforcement. And this is the interesting consequence of, like, does your country put uh, trade sanctions on another country that landed on it? Does that then imply that you're making a national claim? Everything kind of goes up to this national leviathan that's going to enforce your claim. Or you have, like, space cowboys, right? Or something, and you're, and you're, like, actively destroying other people making land on your claim. Right, which actually goes against other provisions in the space treaty. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the other avenue that you could pursue would be in the courts, but then it becomes a question of whose courts, right? Which legal system do you sue for your, your property rights? And... How does the court then enforce their judgment? If it's a Chinese company that lands on planetary resources asteroid and planetary resources sues them in the United States, well, maybe the Chinese don't care about that, right? Interesting. I was talking to this field geologist uh, not too long ago who specializes in diamonds. And he, he used to work for De Beers and uh, went off on his own and formed smaller companies to scout out and discover new diamond resources in Central Africa and places that haven't been explored yet. And he would tell me that whenever they would strike diamond, basically, and they would find diamonds, word would get out in days. No matter how deep into the bush that they were, how far from any cities they were, people would hear about it and start showing up in days to take the diamonds too. That could happen when you have a strike it rich on an asteroid. They're able to exercise force, I guess, and he was a little vague about what how they uh, dissuaded people from coming back, but they, they were able to exercise some sort of show of force or way to, to push people away and to tell them not to come back, 
it's a lot harder to do in space, just like everything associated with mining is. But it's a really fascinating situation where we're, you know, the Outer Space Treaty, uh, Jason, that was written to help uh, avoid conflict in space, right? Territorial conflict in space. Yeah, so it was written in 1967, and it was basically, yeah. it's, a, it's a bilateral treaty. Even though you have signatories, you know, across the globe, it's basically a treaty trying, it's the United States and Russia trying to limit each other's strategic advantages in space. Yeah, nowhere were they thinking about private companies prospecting for resources uh, in addition to that. That was just nowhere right. on the radar, right? That That's was so far fantasy. I don't even know what they thought about it in terms of fantasy. So I think what we're seeing here is this maturation of the commercial or completely private, right? This is the stuff that we're talking about. So let's actually maybe jump back and talk about our two main players here. We got Planetary Resources, uh, which is based in, in Washington State, my beloved Washington State. Uh, we also have uh, Deep Space Industries, which I think is, is that down in Florida or Texas? I think, it's, I think they're in Texas. Uh, yeah, okay. I'll, I'll look it up. Yeah, and they're both, but what's interesting, both these companies have private venture capital. You know, there's, I mean, I guess you have the country of Luxembourg has signed an agreement with <laughs> Deep Space Industries now. But effectively, you're, you're not using taxpayer money in the United States to support these companies that are trying to build a very interesting case for a long-term business of mining precious metals and other resources uh, from these asteroids. You have, uh, with planetary resources, you have some really big-time investors from Google uh, and, and Intel and, and other, you know, a lot of Silicon Valley money. Uh, as I said, you got the, st uh, the country of Luxembourg supporting deep space industries. And it's a lot of it's just predicated that in 30 years, you're going to have a windfall of profit. And they actually have some very clever ways to make money leading up to that with uh, remote sensing here on the Earth and patents and laser communication and all sorts of interesting things like that. But the goal, right, is to have these robotic uh, machines grab precious metals. And I think even also what's precious in space is pretty much anything you don't have to launch from the ground, water ice, which you can turn into fuel and refuel spacecraft in orbit. With it. You're able to resupply and refuel spacecraft. So it's a really interesting area, and it's even more interesting in that the, the government doesn't have to spend taxpayer money on this risk, right? We're actually at a point where the, the industry, in a sense, is mature enough that there's enough money sloshing around. You can just basically say as long as they have the legal... I think what you saw from this Commercial uh, Space Launch Competitiveness Act was even though if this isn't, I think, broadly... If this throws up some gray areas in terms of the Outer Space Treaty... They can tell, the investors can tell that the United States government is supportive of this endeavor from a policy. They're not going to tell them after they've invested millions of dollars that they can't do this. I think that's the really why you saw this uh, legislation pass. We're all wrong about DSI. Their corporate headquarters is, uh, get this, at the NASA Ames Research Park in Northern California, basically Silicon Valley, though they also, not surprisingly, now have an office in Luxembourg. You know, I wonder if we aren't headed into, and I'll be the first to coin this phrase, I hope, the era of the new 49ers, except it'll be 2049, and they'll be staking <laughs> claims out there um, in the deep solar system. That's good, Matt. So, I like that. That is good. <laughs> it brings up an interesting question, too, right? There's a difference between staking a claim and actually bringing stuff back to the Earth for, for commercial resale. The interesting thing about these business cases is they're all predicated on an enormous amount of technology development that no one's really even started yet. Yeah, we were talking earlier about planetary resources. They're still trying to detect asteroids, much less go out, claim them, 
figure out what's on them, figure out how to mine them, figure out how to bring the stuff back, figure out how to either process it in space if it's water ice or figure out how to get it back to the earth if it's metal or something that's of, of financial value on earth. Uh, so there are a whole slew of questions between here and actual planetary mining or uh, asteroid mining. But in the meantime, it, it'll be really interesting to see how these companies make ends meet until they have those capabilities. You know, if you're able, like we mentioned with planetary resources, if you're able to detect all of these asteroids, you can also detect other things in Earth orbit or in space. So it becomes sort of a de facto space situational awareness array. And maybe they could rent that capability to the Air Force or to companies who have uh, satellites that they want to make sure aren't hit by space debris. So there are a lot of interesting market niches, and it's totally unclear where, where this is going to lead at this point. Yeah, and you can see that. And again, I think they're already pivoting a little bit towards uh, hyper, multispectral, hyperspectral observations of the Earth, which has a, quite a bit of market, uh, a private market already in existence that would buy that information. Uh, I think they're going to be going after patents. That, you know, they have uh, business models. And I think the interesting, as you bring up, the amount of technical difficulty is so great the question here is, is it achievable, even with these leaner companies, within the amount of money available through private venture capital? You, you can raise quite a bit of money if you're smart about it. You look at Uber's raised billions of dollars, right? But NASA spends tens of billions of dollars a year on a variety of things. <laughs> All of these are going to fall behind because I believe Osiris Rex is technically going to be the first mining spacecraft in uh, to an asteroid. <laughs> I don't think they're going after the resources because they're technically you know, going to grab some of these samples. Oh, um, maybe there'll be some diamonds in that two kilograms of stuff they bring back. Hey, yeah, you know, it pays for itself, right? <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, it's a hard thing to do. And I, it's one of those situations where what's is not whether or not even I hope that they do it. I, I think that would just be astonishing. That would be awesome if they did it. But the amazing thing to me is that we, we're even talking about it, that it's not fantastical, right? This isn't some crackpot somewhere writing frantic screeds on the Internet these are groups of people, highly capable, highly technical, capable people, the best, some of the best people who used to work at JPL and, and NASA and, and private industry and, and software coming together and, and making a, a real attempt at it. You know, we've never been there in human history before. And, and we're seriously, this is, the, again, we're seeing the consequence in terms of policy has to change. We're running up against the, 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 the limits of what policy was defined of, of Cold War strategic policy limiting, you know, potential threats in space. Now we have to expand that because we have private investment where the technology could theoretically change. This will be a good test of what's the bureaucratic overhead cost to NASA. And if you can eliminate that, how much more nimble can you be and how much less money do you actually need to be successful? Yeah. And can you mitigate the risk that is often overcome by that bureaucracy? That's a, a key factor that a lot of people... Yeah, well, yeah. yeah, exactly. There's a reason OSIRIS-REx has a very good chance of succeeding, despite the fact it's the first time we've ever tried, NASA's ever tried to do this because they spent almost a billion dollars buying down that risk, right? That's right. The solution that you're seeing a lot of these private companies go is in swarms of smaller spacecraft that yeah. can accept a certain amount of loss as you'll, you'll just make up for it in, in your sheer numbers. Yeah, um, higher expected rate of failure. Yeah. yeah. And this is, I think, why it's going to be so exciting to see if deep space industries can pull off this uh, 
asteroid mission that they have just come up with, which is basically on a shoestring budget compared to anything that NASA would do. Will they be able to pull this off in the next few years? Uh, It's going to be fascinating to watch. We do live in exciting times. So I think we've pretty much wrapped up this show. But Jason, you said something that was interesting to me about this outer space treaty, right? This effectively a bilateral treaty, but a broad treaty about not claiming territory in order to prevent conflicts in space, right? Between the Soviet Union and the United States. If we didn't have that treaty, would the United States have ever stopped the Apollo program if we had to lay a claim to the moon in order to have that defensive advantage? or if there would be even defensive advantage, if there was actually a race to claim territory in the Cold War, I'm going to just throw out there, maybe we would still have, we would have our lunar base back in like 1974 because it would be a national security imperative that we would have to retain our foothold in space. Would that have ultimately been a, a better thing for human exploration? Absolutely not, because it would, have, <laughs> it would have resulted in a militarized program. The Air Force would have been running the Apollo program and the stuff that happened on the moon, we wouldn't even know about. So I think that that would be a very disappointing way for humans to enter into space, myself. <laughs> I'm, th- I'm, I'm thinking of what's happening right now in the South China Sea, I believe, where these multiple overlapping claims over what are supposed to be international waters but are claimed by China and the Philippines. And uh, uh, that's an interesting parallel, I would say. It's a good thing the, that things went the way they did. Yeah, it's actually quite enlightened to take that attitude about all of this potential <laughs> land, I suppose. So I guess if you look at it from the pure perspective of presence, you would maybe have seen more an aggressive presence, but it would have been at the cost of science and potentially uh, global stability and world order, um, which I suppose is a good thing that we have. And we never would have gone past the moon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what a great question to leave us with, uh, Casey. Uh, I, I guess we can wrap this up. Hey, I have an idea, Matt. One more thing before we wrap up. To anyone still listening, should we do a regular feature as to a hypothetical? Maybe we could take from, from listeners, toss us a hypothetical space policy question, and we'll take a crack at answering one per episode. In graduate school, they referred to this as counterfactual history. Yeah. <laughs> Alternate history. history. Yeah. What if so everyone can pretend to be a grad student? Uh, <laughs> last week's uh, Planetary Radio, speculating with John Logston about uh, what if the Soviets had won the space race. I love that idea, Casey. Let's uh, see what kind of responses we get. People, of course, can write to us about this program at Planetary Radio at planetary.org or leave your comments um, wherever you're listening to the show on SoundCloud or at planetary.org slash radio where you find this uh, show page. Uh, we do want to hear from you and we are very grateful to all of you who have let us know uh, what you think of the program so far. The reaction has been good, guys. I think we ought to keep doing it. Oh, okay. You insist. I'm, I'm good with that. <laughs> <laughs> we have been talking once again on this space policy edition of Planetary Radio with Casey Dreyer, the Planetary Society's Director of Space Policy, and with Jason Callahan, the Society's Space Policy Advisor based in Washington, D.C., where so much of what we're good, we've been talking about and will continue to talk about uh, unfolds. This effort is uh, part of what the Planetary Society does that goes right back to the beginning of the Society and its uh, advocacy for uh, 
space exploration, particularly for planetary science. It is still something that we uh, hold very dear to our hearts, and we trust that you do as well. You can learn more about the Planetary Society, and by the way, our brand new or relatively new uh, membership program. Become part of this program and everything else that the Society is up to, including LightSail 2. Just go to planetary.org slash membership, and you'll see all the great incentives and rewards and uh, all the things that should make you feel very good about becoming a member of the Planetary Society. And for those of you who are already members, thank you. You uh, make it possible for us to do all this. Uh, With that, we'll uh, say goodbye until the first Friday in October. Uh, Guys, once again, thanks so much. Thank you, Matt. I think I'll see both of you guys next week down at the launch in Florida. You're going to see Casey. Sadly, you won't see me, but uh, I, 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 <laughs> I look forward to hearing from you guys who get to go down there and watch that uh, launch of the uh, asteroid material retrieval mission, uh, OSIRIS-REx. Uh, have a great time. Thanks so much, and good luck to Dante Loretta and his whole team, and uh, go OSIRIS-REx. Go OSIRIS-REx.